Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. There's no shortage of podcasts these days. Anyone can buy a microphone off the internet and start talking into it. I'm proof of that. The trick is finding an audience willing to listen. Passion is a great place to start. and There are a few things people are more passionate about than music and food. So why not connect them? That's been the recipe for success for my guest, Greg Bresnitz. It all started with a TV show, Dinner with the Band, but took off with his long-running podcast, Snacky Tunes, which he began taping with his co-host and twin brother, Darren, in 2009. Since then, the pair have recorded over 500 episodes interviewing chefs about the music that inspires their food. It's a format that lends itself to endless hours of conversation and makes for a pretty compelling live event, too. In 2022... Greg debuted Crescendo, a new show guiding listeners through a seven-course menu with a chef pairing each dish with a song. Greg grew up in Philadelphia but built his career in New York and relocated to Lafayette in 2020. Uh, it's a fitting place for what he does. Few places combine food and music quite like Acadiana. Greg Bresnitz, welcome to Out the Lunch. Thank you for having me. Uh, knowing your audience is the first rule of media. It's also the best way to make your case in advocacy, especially when you're talking to the world. Warren Perrin is an attorney by trade, but he's best known internationally as an advocate for Acadian culture and a preservationist of Cajun history. He's also an author of books, uh, including a biography of Beausoleil Broussard, and he founded the Acadian Heritage Cultural Foundation, which operates the Acadian Museum of Louisiana and Erath, his hometown. Warren uh, made international headlines as the man who won an apology from the Queen of England. He spent a decade petitioning the British Crown to formally end the exile of the Acadian people. And in 2003, the Crown issued a royal proclamation apologizing for the expulsion and setting July 28th as the official date commemorating the Acadian deportation. If that weren't enough, Warren was also inducted into the UL Sports Hall of Fame for his achievements on UL's legendary weightlifting team. Warren Parent, welcome to Out to Lunch. A pleasure to be here, Christian. So, Greg... Um, You've taped 500 episodes of Snacky Tunes, so I'm like, you know, I, I rarely interview other interviewers, and I'm thinking to myself, like, God, if I get to 500 episodes, like, what am I even talking about at that point? I mean, do you feel like it's someday you're just going to run out of bands and food to talk about? I mean, the good thing about interviewing chefs uh, and musicians is that there's always new ones, and they've always got something interesting to say. A lot of the interviews that we've done on Snacky Tunes are hyper-personalized. We go all the way back to the beginning. Um, we've done everything from a chef you've never heard of that just opened up their first restaurant to Massimo Batora, biggest chef in the world, and everyone in between. Each one has a unique story and a way that they got there, and each one has a unique insight on how they approach food and serving their customers. So we take the time to really research them and their viewpoints, and it really makes for a good conversation. I see are less about interviews, actually, and more like guideposts. I hmm. see it to be a story that just unfolds, and I'm there just to get it out of them best they can. The best interviews are where I ask maybe six questions over 40 minutes, and they do most of the talking. Wow. What was Massimo's musical pairing? Massimo's music pairing was Autumn in New York, okay. which actually was a big inspiration for... Uh, one of his most famous dishes, also of the same name. Yeah. When we were getting ready to write the Snacky Tunes book, uh, which came out on Fade In in October 2020, 
he had casually mentioned that he was inspired by that song for that dish. And that actually was one of the sparks for the book because we realized, as we had through over the years, the absolute deep connection between chefs and the music they listen to and how it pushes their restaurants, how it pushes uh, the, the dishes that they create, how they use it for inspiration. And so that was the kind of kernel for what came next. Yeah. So, Warren, um, we still talk a lot about Acadian culture in almost as though it's still under threat. And then I think about, you know, the, the achievement of the apology, right, the recognition. Um, and so sometimes I, I, I'm left to ask myself, like, what are we still fighting for here? <laughs> Isn't that enough? Well, I, I viewed the apology as a way of making people get interested in their history because I had no clue growing up that I was part of this four million people in the world that had been victimized as the first act of ethnic cleansing in North America. I didn't know why I could speak French. I asked my grandpa why he spoke French and he had no clue. So I always had that nagging question in my mind, you know, why am I a part of something bigger that I don't know about? And uh, going to UL and being on the Olympic weightlifting team, I met Walter Amahara who told me about his family being deported, similar to the Acadians from California, placed in an internment camp during World War II. And when we apologized to the Japanese Americans in 1988 by signing an official apology by President Reagan, it, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, this is the opportunity to study this issue and seek redemption for our ancestors who had been deemed as criminals because the British had to justify the deportation in an in a unfactual way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's a powerful idea, right? I mean, and it's certainly something that um, resonates even today, obviously. And and it, it strikes me though that we we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking through um, preservation, right? Like you know, you're talking about how you grew up um, as a person sort of unaware of this history, and, and sometimes people would, I, I think, would have this idea that well, that's because you weren't so interested in history, you were too busy living it, right? I mean, at some point when we're kind of thinking about history and preservation that there, there can be a tendency to put it in a box and say that's that thing and you know life is for the living man right I mean <laughs> well if if Longfellow the poet doesn't write Evangeline and publish it in 1848 we would have been forgotten in history we wouldn't be here talking about Acadian or Cajun culture period because mm-hmm. there was a century of silence following the deportation mm-hmm. no one wrote about it there were no songs written no poetry, nobody told the story. Both sides wanted to get on with their lives. And Longfellow lit the spark that made the whole world, it made his book the number one best-selling book in the world in four, for 14 years. And the last line in Evangeline is, the exile begins never to end. So there's a lot of powerful symbolism to me in that poem. And although we, we latched upon Evangeline as this fictional heroine, which we hung our history around that, and she was fiction. So it's like our actual history is so much more interesting than the fictional story that Longfellow spun with Evangeline. But it's the power of the story of separating people and families and lovers and trying to find each other that makes it such a compelling story. Greg, I'm curious if you think about what you do at all in terms of documentation, right? I mean, you, you know, that's an impressive catalog of stories that you've captured, you know, over 
15 years. But do we even, I, I understand that it's deeply personal, right? That you're trying to connect with that person. But do you, do you at all think about that as a, you know, a record of history? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the book that we wrote, we feel was done right at the kind of end of the golden era of the restaurant industry. We finished the book and then I think we finished editing it early March and then COVID happened and then everything that happened to the restaurant industry happened. So our book is a combination of playlists, um, stories, narratives, etc., about people growing up and being inspired and telling their personal history. And it's, it's chefs from around the world. So it's interesting to hear how you talk about Warren, about this way of uh, capturing a story and telling a story. And most of these people came from communities that were either overlooked or undervalued or not served well. Um, and then we able got to play on a national stage and we're able to educate people about their communities and their heritage through their food and the stories that they were telling through the ways that they served their customers. So kind of in the way that the book captured an untold story, a lot of these dishes and these chefs actually act as ambassadors for their cultures and are able to push issues that might otherwise not bring the, might be might not be seen in the light of day. Hmm. You know, Warren, did, did you find, you know, in your work, I mean, there have been no shortages, I guess, since the mid-20th century of um, tastemakers who found um, found something in, in Cajun culture, right? I mean, I'm thinking of Paul Prudhomme becoming a world-renowned chef, right? And people becoming aware of visions of our culture. I mean, did that... Did that help, right? I mean, in, in, in your in your pursuit of the proclamation, that people kind of knew about the Acadians, or did you find that most people are like, wait, who who are you talking about? Absolutely. Uh, what's really uh, maddening to the four million Acadians in the world who don't call themselves Cajuns, we're the only group that picked up the name Cajun as a corruption of the word Acadien. It was shortened to Cajun, ultimately Cajun. Everybody in the world knows what a Cajun is because of our food and our music. If you ask them what an Acadian is, most people have no clue. So we have become known by our culture as Acadians have not. Why? I would say probably the World's Fair of 1984 opened the culture, the music, the food, the language, the uniqueness, the, re the realty of our culture to the world. Mm -hmm. And so I started this petition in 1990 and the, that decade the, the Berlin Wall just came down in 89 the Soviet Union broke up so the decade of peace was the 90s Bill Clinton was president it was no wars going on and so the timing of the petition was right it allowed countries to review their history and be introspective and not be afraid to confront their past mm -hmm. so the World's Fair in New Orleans although a financial disaster was what made the culture known worldwide. Mm -hmm. Greg, I got to imagine that you've, you're talking about, you're, you're interviewing chefs who come from any number of um, cultural traditions and stuff. And I mean, you, you know, certainly something that seems to be happening in uh, literature about food, literature about music certainly is the, is the idea that like all human activity is politics, right? You can't, you know, sort of divorce it from um, cultural traditions, but also what, what people go through. I mean, if, I, you must have just like heard some pretty powerful stories, right, from these kinds of um, groups that, that have been overlooked, right? I mean, in, in the way that food becomes an expression of who they are and then sort of an act of um, individualism or, or perseverance. Am I right in <laughs> assuming that? I mean, I guess I, you, you talk, touched a little bit on the, the, the concept of there being a lot of these folks that you've encountered, right? from overlooked culture. So I'm thinking, of, because I've come from here, right, you know, the, the other sort of 
Acadians of the world, not literally the other Acadians of the world, but cultures like that, perhaps kind of un- overlooked. I mean, is, is there one that you kind of encountered that was particularly uh, interesting to you? I don't think that you can separate after all these, like, one individual story. I think it's like a compendium of things. But what you generally see is people whose culture was appropriated. And so you would have someone who would be like, oh, like I went to go visit somewhere and I came back and now I'm making that food or presenting that, but have no connection to it other than I went to a trip and you know took some recipes. Sure. You now see people who are having the ability to be like, hey, I'm from there and I want to tell that authentic story. And people actually actively seeking out and going after that for whatever reason, um, uh, you know, for no other reason than wanting to actually go directly to the source. You know, I remember going to see a panel um, a number of years ago about uh, citing your sources, you know, and like it was really controversial um, and continues to be controversial about people who are picking up references and cooking food that's not their own and also not acknowledging where it came from. Uh, and, I, and the conference was essentially just like, hey, like this might not change the way that, you know, people appropriate other cultures. However, it would be nice if you just said, hey, you didn't grow up this way and you learned from this person or you like got reference points or you got educated this point. Just so people were curious, they could go more directly to the source. And you hopefully begin to see that more of a movement towards that and like at least acknowledgement around where people are being able to get it and like, you know, owning up to culture that's not their own. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with podcaster Greg Bresnitz and culture advocate Warren Perrin. Warren, do you, do you see what the way that Cajun identity plays out on the world stage and think to yourself, we're being appropriated in, in a way that's inappropriate? That's a weird way of saying that, but yeah. Occasionally, but by and large, no. I, I, I've traveled the world representing the state of Louisiana and the United States for uh, 30, nearly 40 years. And uh, generally, their appreciation of us is more accurate now than ever, as I see it. Hmm. The, the stereotypical Cajun now is not no longer a swamp-dwelling creature that eats alligators, although we eat alligators. <laughs> uh, I was uh, asked many times what I thought about the uh, TV show Swamp People. And what I haven't told many people is I helped them launch that show from the Cajun Museum of Erath where they wanted to study Cajuns. And I spent uh, three days with the producers of the show. And they wanted to know whether I w- wanted to be credited for having helped them create the, the, the show. And I, I declined. Because there are people that live like swamp people. I know them. They live in Kaplan. They live in Erath. They live in Delco. But that's such a small slice of the culture. I think now we're appreciated more for the Paul Prudhomme's, the George Rodriguez, the Zachary Richard's, the Daryl Borks of the world mm-hmm. that have reached out and, and made us better understood. If, if I may, uh, so the new podcast I did called Crescendo, it's a very different format than Snacky Tunes. Uh, chefs imagine a seven-course menu, and then each dish is paired with a song. So the Lafayette episode we did was with Holly Gerard, who's third-generation owner of Tons, and Roddy Romero, who I believe everyone knows and has been played on KRVS uh, many, many, many times. And what was super interesting is that their episode was probably one of my favorites, if only because it was so unique to the culture of Acadiana and played into none of the stereotypes that you would think that would kind of come with that. Um, the show was about you know, preserva- you know, preservation of a cultural institution and a culinary institution that has like, stayed true to their community and presented dishes that were in fad, out of fad, now accepted and now sought, out, sought after. From Holly's side of view and then from Roddy's side of view, presenting songs by like Barbie Charles or Professor Longhair, which I know is not necessarily Lafayette, but of you know, the Louisiana cultural mindset. And I think what's been amazing as an outsider is that Acadiana 
has just stayed true through all the years and, and never wavered, right? It never succumbed to national, international trends. It's always been itself. And I think that people find a deep respect and appreciation for it because instead of becoming homogenized, it just becomes, you know, people have now come to it as opposed to Acadiana going to them, which is why the appreciation might be so well-respected on an international stage. What you may not know is that Acadiana in the last two censuses was shown to be the most culturally diverse region in the United States. I believe it. Uh, Dr. Karl Brasser was hired by the Russian government when the Soviet Union was breaking up, and they wanted to try to prevent ethnic cleansing in the former Soviet Union. And they came and hired him to do a study as to why the most culturally diverse region in America got along with each other, had a flag, had a designated region of Acadiana, 22 parish area. Now, what's the answer? I submit it's that we settled here, Acadians, victimized by ethnic cleansing. One-third of our people were killed during the deportation or died of starvation or disease. And so we just have it in our DNA to be more accepting of people, as I see it. That's why we have a German festival. We have a Vietnamese festival. If you want to go to New Iberia to meet the Thai people, they're there. So I think... It, it springs from the people that settled here. We have always, Acadiana has always been a welcoming area. And when freed slaves or escaped slaves left plantations on the river, they couldn't head east, that was British. They always headed west. And they ended up settling the parishes of St. Lange Evangeline, where you sprung with Zotico music, the Creole culture, cowboys. And you see it, I mean, time and time again in the history of, of dishes. Uh, you can see, you know, kosher laws, for example, were only enshrined later as religious, but they were actually originally like dietary. You know, Jewish people had a predication to not eating, you know, pigs because of trichinosis and seafood gave them allergies. And every time that I'm here, and you know, when you, Holly talks about it uh, on Crescendo about the gumbo and the kind of the dishes that all started with, you know, relatively poor, you know, not a lot of money, but they would take, you know, cheap cuts that needed a long time to cook and like you see it in the dishes or you needed a roux that would just like needed like fortification, just like flour and water, how you could get it. And you see a history of a people. So to go back to the narratives, if you go and you take down people's dishes and you break it down, you take it all the way to the roots and it's not deconstructed or modernized, you see a commonality. And I think, you know, what's so super interesting, Warren, is especially here, you see so many cultures like up against each other being like respectful and possibly inspired, but still very uniquely defined in a, in a way that is like amazing. And I think now on the other side of whatever era where homogenization, as I talked about before, um, or assimilation or ethnic cleansing, people want to hold on to it because it's not a given that something won't disappear. And when you get these chefs being able to put these dishes forward day after day, year after year, decade after decade, especially if it's generational, it becomes something deeply appreciated and super valued and something that needs to be held on to. Yeah, you know, Greg, hearing you sort of talk about this, right, <clears throat> it, it makes me feel like your, your work ends up getting into... <laughs> almost like less about the culinary aspects of it, right? Or, or, or but, but something more um, historical in nature, right? I mean, it's some, something that's kind of been rattling in my head a little bit. It was sort of that Frank Zappa quote, right? Which is like, what, writing about music's like dancing about architecture. Like there's this idea that like, it, there's something intrinsically difficult about writing about other art forms. You're, you're obviously podcasting's a little different, but I mean, how do you approach that with your chefs? I mean, at some point, like, you know, we're sitting in a restaurant here. I can smell them cooking pork. But, I mean, like, that's a hard thing to convey to people. But a history is, is much easier. Uh, I think what you may be looking for is human. 
So my approach to the culinary world has always been the human element of it. Uh, there are other culinary shows out there that will tell you how to chop vegetables and the best way to like braise a lamb shank, and that's great. But that's also like you're listening to that, and are you in the kitchen? My approach has always been through like what is the human side of it, and how are they connecting with other humans? Uh, Snacky Tunes and the book and Crescendo is essentially like two different type of artistic disciplines, food and music, and how they connect with other people. Um, outside of lyricists, it's mostly nonverbal ways of connecting with people and, and finding those like deeper bonds. So my interviews, if you look at them, it, it looks very vague on the page. It's, it's actually just like a bunch of words and phrases that I see as guideposts to get the most out of a person, the most out of a story, and unlock things that would not, not otherwise be, be told. And so time and time again when I do these interviews I go for something that they've never been asked for that is adjacent or maybe come through their culinary as a starting point but almost has nothing to do with what they're doing in the kitchen. Warren I'm sort of curious at this point you've been doing this for a number of years right um, who in your mind you're speaking to right I mean like at some level like you, you, you write books you, you talk about the Acadian story, but are we telling the Acadian story now for the people that live here, for outsiders like Greg? I mean, who are we, who are we talking to now? The story is not finished. We, I literally learn something every week. I just read an incredible historical article tying in the American Revolution directly to the Acadian deportation. Why? Because the colonies had to subsidize and and feed 5,000 Acadians for seven years during the French and Indian War without government support. Their enemy. And so that led to an increase in taxes proposed on the colonists, which led to the Boston Tea Party, which led to the American Revolution. So we're still part of this world history that people are just coming to piece together. Dr. John McFarragher of Yale University is the one who first made the statement that the Acadian deportation set the stage for the American Revolution. It just happened a few years after. And of course, the Acadians who had come to Louisiana joined the Spanish militia and defeated the British at three key battles, Mobile, Pensacola, and Baton Rouge. And George Washington complimented the Spanish for helping him win the American Revolution. So when I learned things like this, and you can't find that in a book. This has just been published in a historical article. It makes me want to keep digging and keep exploring. Sure, but I mean, is it, I mean, obviously knowledge is worth its own weight, but to some extent it's like a wonder, you know, are, are we doing this for our own benefit, right? Saying, okay, we got to preserve this and tell this story to the people who live in Lafayette and in the surrounding, or are we trying to talk to the, to the world at large about all this? Yes, we are, because ethnic cleansing and genocide is not a good thing. And as long as we study it more and we see why it happens and what are the results of it, uh, one of the proudest things I am about the Royal Proclamation, which is bi it's, uh, bilingual, it's used in the French immersion schools to teach children. If they can understand the Royal Proclamation's language, they understand Acadian history, and they know they were victimized by the British. Uh, the Queen just celebrated her 70th uh, anniversary for accession to the throne, and I was contacted by the BBC. And they wanted to interview me. And I said, why do you want to interview me about the Queen's biography? And they told me, you're the only person that's ever sued the Queen. What do you think about her? And I said, I think she's the wisest woman that ever lived because she did the right thing. I just gave her the opportunity to do the right thing. So to me, it's how are you going to get kids to be interested? 
unless you're teaching it to them in school, and the proclamation is part of that. Greg, you know, you mentioned that when, when you have occasion to learn about cultures, right, through either medium, food, music, whatever, you start to see themes and commonalities. I mean, I, I am curious as a guy who grew up in Philadelphia, right, uh, married into the family, so to speak. I mean, what are those themes that you see, like that pe- people might think is idiosyncratic to Katiana, but you, you, you see expressed in other cultures from the work that you do? I mean, marrying a Cajun uh, and coming down here, it's, it's odd. I actually see a lot of commonalities. I grew up Jewish between Jews and Cajun. Uh, it's, it's almost stark in the, the love of food, um, persecuted people <laughs> over the time. Story is definitely not done being told ever. I actually really identify with that, Warren. Um, and a, a real like strong suit of perseverance and just doing whatever it takes to make sure that not only does your culture survive, but your family is protected and you you know have the right to exist. I, I see a lot of strong parallels for that. I think you see a lot of that um, in, in a lot of cultures that do not normally get the, the limelight. Um, and those stories, again, are told through food and, and survival and, and the, the kind of continuation of protecting and pres- preserving a culture. I think you're going to enjoy reading the book I'm working on now on the uh, death of David Berger, who was a Jew from Cleveland, Ohio. He was one of the 11 Jewish athletes killed in the Munich Olympics of 1972. And he was a a competitor of mine because he was a two-lane weightlifter. Mm. And his family has given me permission to write his story, his biography, and I hope to have it released on the 50th anniversary of the Olympics, which would be later this year. And I, I spent a lot of time contrasting and comparing the Jewish and Akkadian cultures. And, and one thing that you said I wanted to pick up on about the, and to your question about the importance of telling stories. So Najat Kanash, um, who is someone I met when we wrote the book and is also on the season of Crescendo, she has told me over and over again that she was born um, a poor girl with no shoes who was destined to do nothing. She's now recognized as one of the top chefs in the entire world always on the top of the best like Moroccan restaurants and has created this global empire global empire she brings women down from the mountains um, to the city of Fez and teaches them how to make cheese and how to build businesses um, she's just traveled around the world she's an amazing ambassador and she tells her same story over and over and over I've interviewed her multiple times for multiple different projects she always tells me the same thing and, I, and at one point it's like a shot I, I know this like I know this like you don't need to tell me again she's like I do need to tell you again because you need to know my story so you can use your platform to tell other people's story so young girls who were told they were born to do nothing can see my story and achieve what I've achieved. So I think similar to that, you telling your story, Warren, and you being able to kind of over and over and continue to put the platform out there, you could put a bow on it and say it's done, but if you continue to like rattle the cages and, and bring awareness to it, someone might see it and might have a different life because of that story and go down a different path and think that they are worth something and something is achievable because they know the history behind it. So I think, Greg, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said at the end of the day what, what this is all about is it's humanity, right? I mean, it, it's, it, stories are just an expression of people and, and who they are. And, and both of you have clearly found powerful ways of, of capturing that. And thanks for joining me here on that one, Katie my guests today on Out to Lunch have been uh, podcast host Greg Bresnitz and culture advocate Warren Perrin. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS. And you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Warren and Greg by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Dylan Babineau. 
Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard, Shayla Lang, and Destiny Traha. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. Today's show was engineered also by Dylan Dabino. I'm Christian Bader, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news outlet. For stories deeper than the headlines, head over to thecurrentla.com. Sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 